bottom line here is that if you're not competitive, then you have to change something to become competitive. That'll really come down to analyzing your workflow. If you're not competitive, it's usually something in your workflow that is causing you not to be competitive. Howard Fenton is a senior consultant on production and digital technology for NAPL, the leading trade association for companies in the $100 billion-plus graphic communications industry. Join us as Howard talks about understanding your printing workflows on the NAPL Workflows podcast. I'm your host, Steve Lubetkin. Hello and welcome to the NAPL Workflows podcast, produced by NAPL for the graphic communications industry. NAPL's comprehensive slate of business building solutions provides company leaders with the strategies, insights, and guidance they can use to make informed business decisions, minimize risk, anticipate change, and profitably grow their business. Within NAPL, the industry experts in our professional services group deliver independent advice to owners and senior managers of companies needing specialized know-how and practical insights as they consider strategic options or make critical decisions affecting their business. For more information about NAPL, visit napl.org or call 1-800-642-NAPL. That's 1-800-642-6275. And choose option four. Now to today's program. Author, trainer, and consultant Howie Fenton has worked with graphic communications companies nationwide for more than two decades. With a client list of over 250 companies, he specializes in digital printing, digital pre-press workflow, and the management of digital technologies. Howie has written five books and hundreds of articles about digital printing, scanning, color management, process control, and digital technologies. He's a judge for the PODI, that's Print on Demand Initiative, Best Practices in Digital Print Awards, and he served on the HP Digital Printing Advisory Council. Howie is a regular speaker at Graph Expo, NAPL's top management conference, and nearly every major industry show in the U.S. and around the world. He's taught advanced computer graphics at Montclair State College in Montclair, New Jersey, and computer-to-plate, digital printing, and PDF workflows at the Rochester Institute of Technology School of Printing. We spoke with him at NAPL's headquarters in Paramus, New Jersey. Howie Fenton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Howie, we hear an awful lot about workflow in many industries, and in particular in the printing industry. What exactly do we mean when we're talking about workflow? Workflow is used a lot. In fact, you could say that it's overused. Uh, A lot of manufacturers use it to describe their products. In fact, if you go to a major show like a Graph Expo or a print show, you'll see that almost every manufacturer will include something about workflow in their product description. But what workflow really means to most graphic arts companies is it's your staff, it's the level of training, it's your equipment and your procedures, something that I often refer to as step. Uh, staff training, equipment, and procedures, all of those go into what your workflow is. It's not just the equipment 
and the the way that the work flows through the equipment, but it's it's all of those things, staff training, equipment, and procedures. Oftentimes we think of the workflow strictly as a salesperson goes out, they get the work, they get an estimate, they hand it over to a customer service rep, and they turn it into the pre-press department and the post-press department and things like that. But really there's so much more to workflow, and, and workflow really is a critical success factor these days. When you look at companies that are successful, what you find is that they've optimized their productivity and they've streamlined their procedures to drive costs out. And and that's really important because one of the toughest challenges, one of the things that I hear most, I visit probably 30 companies a year on a consulting basis, one of the things I hear most from people is the difficulty they have in remaining competitive, which usually means streamlining your procedures, optimizing your workflow, having the right equipment, those sorts of things. If I'm a printer and I'm starting to think about these things, where am I going to look to find my company's workflows? There's a lot of different workflows within a company. So, for example, there's what you might consider a a sales workflow, a customer service workflow, a pre-press workflow, a post-press press workflow. All of those are sort of individual workflows within your company. But what people don't understand, I don't think, is that you need to have sort of a streamlined workflow. When a, a project comes to bear, when a project comes up, we think about which silos are we going to use to for lack of a better term, attack that project. But really, what you need to think about is a seamless workflow that can take advantage of all of the work that you need to look at, as opposed to sort of at a one-job-at-a-time basis. And, and workflows are becoming more automated. They're becoming, one of the terms that we're hearing a lot more in the industry now is touchless production or no-touch production in which we're actually automating the process to such a point that we don't actually have that much manual intervention, that the project is streamlined. I'll give you an example of that. There's a book workflow that's getting a lot of attention these days, and it's because it lends itself very well to no-touch production, which means that a customer creates a book, They send it to a service provider, perhaps a printer, perhaps a self-publisher like Lulu or Ex Libris, and then they order them one at a time. And so they go to a website, the customer can go to a website, order a book, and they can have it automatically go into a printer's workflow. No estimating, no customer service, no pre-flight goes right into the workflow. In fact, in some cases, it goes directly into a printing queue, which allows the printer to not even worry about the production. It literally just gets printed. There's some companies that I walk into where books are printed overnight. Nobody's even there. And all they need to do in the morning is pick up that book or books, put it in a box, ship it out, or put it on their truck. So that's an example of a, of a completely streamlined workflow, a completely automated workflow. And right now we're just seeing that particular workflow just for books, but in the future we're going to see that workflow for more and more applications. When a printer is trying to understand costs and achieve success 
in winning bids, how do they need to think about workflows? How does that factor into the equation, the considerations they need to keep in mind? One of the things that becomes readily apparent if you look at a lot of companies and and you see those that succeed and those that don't succeed, and, and we at NAPL do this all the time. Andy Paparazzi, our chief economist, uh, every month is interviewing 200 printers and looking for the leaders and the laggards. And we typically define the leaders as achieving greater than 10% profitability and the laggards as having less than 5% profitability. And if you've gone to any conference and you've heard Andy talk, you'll see the, the black line and the red line up on the chart. And we'll often talk about how the gap is increasing between the leaders and the laggards. And one of the things, there's a lot of things that you see the leaders do that directly affect workflow, that directly affect operations and production. One of the things that Andy talks about a lot is how the leaders really understand their costs to the penny. And one of the things that I see a lot of is that the leaders on an ongoing basis look to streamline their production and drive costs out of the equation on an ongoing basis. So there are some years where you make a capital investment a decision that allows you to bring new equipment in and that has an impact on driving automation and increasing productivity but you can't do that every year because you only have a certain amount of capital budget and you've got to invest that in different parts of your company at different times how do you continually drive costs out of the equation in each department is maybe one year you make a capital investment the other years you've got to look at things like am I using the technology to its fullest extent it's not at all unusual for me to go into a company and see them taking advantage of 25% of all the tools that they could on a particular hardware or software application and not taking advantage of 75% of the tools that are available that could help them optimize and streamline their workflow. So one of the things that you can do is, is really critically look at, are we fully taking advantage of the technology that we have today? And are we critically evaluating? One of the things that you learn if you study quality production programs like Lean and Six Sigma is that they constantly are reevaluating the way they make things. They're constantly reevaluating their procedures. They're constantly looking for better ways of, of doing their work. And in doing that, they're constantly becoming more productive and driving costs out of the equation. And you talked a lot about uh, the technology piece of it. What are some of the technologies that people should be looking at to streamline their workflows? There's a lot of technologies that have been around for a long time, although we don't see complete adoption of these technologies. For example, computer-to-plate. Computer-to-plate is a technology that allows you to go directly from a digital file to a plate that you can put on a press. And although there's been a moderate amount of success or a moderate amount of adoption of that technology, we haven't yet seen complete widespread adoption of that technology. And there's good reasons for that. Initially, when the first products came to market, they were very expensive. They were cost prohibitive. Not everybody could afford it. If you were a relatively small printer, a one or two million dollar printer, you could obviously not afford to spend a half a million dollars on the device. But over time, we're seeing that less expensive products are coming to market. We're seeing alternatives to the uh, eight-up metal computer plate devices that are very expensive. Polyester plates are being used more and more. 
A lot of people distrust polyester plates because they think that it doesn't have the quality that they need to print out for color, but that's not really entirely true. They've actually increased the thickness of the plates, which they often refer to as dimensional stability. And there's a lot of companies now that are using polyester plate materials to print out for color work, and especially small printers. A polyester plate machine is significantly less expensive than a metal plate device. So computer plate is one example of a technology that is very mature and is more affordable than ever. Digital proofing is another. There's this mass migration away from what we used to call contract proofing. A contract proof was a term that we used in which a printer would create a proof and say, if you agree to pay for this, if I match this quality, that I will match this quality on my press. Well, that term has has become less clear. The problem with contract proofs is they're expensive and time-consuming. The trend in the industry is to move away from these contract proofs and to say, here's a proof that's pretty accurate. It's not 100%, but I can create it faster, and it's going to be less expensive. So oftentimes, a printing company will make a large format inkjet proof that will cost significantly less, and they won't say necessarily this is exactly what it's going to look like on press, but they build a level of trust based on their ability to print high quality. And, and that is sort of superseding the ability to need a contract proof. And, and these two technologies are really going hand in hand. Computer plate and digital proofing are going hand in hand because you don't make a piece of film anymore with a computer to plate device. And it's more difficult and more expensive to make a, a high quality digital proof. So those are technologies that I think are mature and well-established and and are on the adoption curve. The next new technology that I think is going to have a significant impact in the marketplace are what we refer to as web-to-print solutions or online services. We're just starting to see the adoption of those technologies where today a customer can go to your website and automatically get an estimate for a job, go to your website and automatically submit a job, go to your website and when they submit that job, that job automatically turns into what we refer to the, in the industry as a job jacket. So really we're taking a lot of the manual intervention out of the process and automating it. And we're just starting to see the success of these web-to-print or online solutions. You can even go a step further. We, were, we talked earlier about how you can do entire book production online. Well, you can also do variable data ad campaigns almost entirely online. There are solutions out in the marketplace today that will that's called templated based production where a company goes online and literally designs their pages based on parts that are on a pasteboard inside of a web interface. So your Pizza Hut, you want to create flyers for all of your companies and you literally choose a logo and a text block and has the same look and feel and it has the right logo on there and then automatically and this is what I think is the really cool part you can also merge a database into that and have it become a direct mail marketing campaign so you've got the 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 design and you've got the variable data aspect of it 
and you're literally creating this all automatically with no intervention online and the best part is is that these files print perfectly it doesn't need any pre-flight because each of the elements on this page has already been pre-flighted so it creates again a streamlined automated workflow and I think that that technology that uh, web to print technology is is going to become one of the most important technologies in the future for a person who maybe just now beginning to focus on these issues and taking a hard look at their workflow What's the starting point for them? Where should they be looking first, and what are some of the things they need to think about as they try to improve or even create a streamlined workflow? The first thing that I try to do is understand what their needs are, understand the unique product mix that they create. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to say what's the best workflow, because there is no one best workflow. The workflow that you design, the workflow that I design for a company, is really entirely dependent on their unique product mix and their culture. Their unique product mix has to do with what they make. Every company makes certain things more profitably and faster than others. The funny thing is, if you walk in and you ask them, they know exactly what the products are that seems to flow through their companies faster. And oftentimes, those products are based on size, format, equipment that they have on-site really determine what a lot of companies do well, and also their culture. There are certain companies that are sales-driven, there are certain companies that are operations-driven, there are certain companies that are accounting-driven, and based on their culture, there are certain things that they do better than others. The first thing that you need to do when you walk into a company or the first thing that a company needs to do if they're thinking about how to streamline their production is they need to think about their needs. They need to do what's called a needs analysis. And a needs analysis really begins with the applications and and the markets that they're targeting. And more and more what I'm starting to see is that companies the most successful companies, the companies that are the leaders in the industry are focusing more and more on focused vertical markets, are focused more on specific applications, trying less to be all things to all people and more on focusing on what they do best. So the first thing to do in a company is to look really at your needs. What are your needs? You know, what's your unique application mix? What are the things that you do well? A lot of times a good exercise is to look at your most profitable work and your least profitable work. Your most profitable work really is the work that you want to try to get more of in an oversimplified way, and the least profitable work is the work that you want to try to either increase your prices on, which is near impossible, drive costs out of the equation, which is possible, or try to eliminate and replace with more profitable work. So the needs analysis, understanding what you do well, what you don't do well, Uh, is the first step in really analyzing um, your workflow. What you're describing sounds like it involves some radical changes in some cases. How does a company work to gain acceptance, the buy-in, if you will, of their sales force and the rest of their staff that this is the right approach to take? Everybody understands that in a theoretical way, 
that what they should really focus on is his most profitable work. But nobody's willing to give up the unprofitable work. And the question is, how do you deal with that? Do you try to increase prices? And you can do that. Some will stay with you, some customers will stay with you, and some customers will leave. You should also, at the same time, look to see if you can drive costs out of the equation and, and see if you can identify why those less profitable jobs are less profitable. In other words, where's the work getting stuck? One, there's a lot of different theories of, of management and quality initiatives. One of them comes directly from a book called The Goal. And the goal talks about bottlenecks. And it talks about when you've got a bottleneck in your process, your bottleneck determines your throughput. And you've got to streamline your work through your bottleneck and you stream and you increase your overall productivity. And that is entirely true. And what we often find is that this work that's less profitable has more bottlenecks. So you've got to identify where those bottlenecks are. And those bottlenecks might be equipment-based or there might be procedural-based. If they're equipment-based, if, if the bottleneck is determined exclusively because of a piece of equipment, then you've got to identify that. And that's really the toughest part of working and understanding workflows is identifying where your problems are. Once you identify where your problems are, it's a lot more clear how to overcome those problems. But a lot of times, I think one of the greatest roles that I try to serve is to help them identify where their problems are. And, and once that's identified, it's a lot easier, it's a lot clearer. In many cases, it's obvious what needs to be done, but you need to find where those issues are. One of the issues in dealing with this less profitable work and this, and this more profitable work is, is the reason that it's less profitable because it has a bottleneck that's determining its profitability? And can we streamline the work through that bottleneck? Do we need to buy additional equipment? Do we need to change procedures? Do we need to increase the amount of inspection or decrease the amount of inspection in the process? We need to try to increase the profitability of the less profitable jobs we need to try to sell more of the high-profitable jobs. We need to also make sure that we keep the staff informed and try to get the buy-in from them so that they understand that the profitability of the company determines their ability, everybody's ability, to stay in business, their, their ability in that company to keep their jobs. So the, the focus on profitability, the focus on more profitable work, the focus on increasing productivity and productivity has to be tied to what does it mean to me in a company? What does it mean to me that I keep my job? Maybe there's even an incentive program tied. And a lot of companies tie profitability to financial incentives, not just for the sales force, but also now customer service is is becoming more and more tied to can you increase the sales of that customer what oftentimes we see in a printing company is that when a salesperson leaves that account goes to a customer service rep and it becomes what's called a house account and the benefit to the company is that they're no longer paying commission on it but the disadvantage is they don't necessarily have someone focusing on trying to sell more products to that existing customer. But some of the more innovative companies are actually looking at incentive programs that they offer to their customer service reps that say, okay, here's the 
level of sales with this customer. If you increase that, we'll give you more money. There'll be a compensation package tied to that. So this this whole conversation about tying incentive programs and being open with both sales and customer service and production about the profitability of the jobs and trying to increase the profitability and trying to increase the productivity of the company can really be discussed on a very open basis. And the discussion and and talking about that openly really helps to get people's buy-in, both from a sales standpoint as well as from a productivity or production standpoint. When you go in and take a look at these unprofitable pieces of business in a company's workflow, are there some methodologies or techniques that you use to try to identify where the problems are? Yes, absolutely. Here's just a few brief things that I try to do when I walk in the doors of a company and I'm performing a workflow analysis for them. I try to look at their workflow. And one of the things that's talked about in the goal is look for piles. If you walk around a company, you often find piles of work that are waiting to be worked on. The formal term for that is work in progress. And the bigger the pile, the bigger the bottleneck. And and just by walking around and looking at the piles, what you see is where the bottlenecks are. So that's one way to do that. Then you have to look sort of for underlying causes. Why is there a bottleneck there? And you need to do things like time and motion studies and say, okay, do we have enough of people here? Do we have enough equipment here? Are the procedures right? And then, you know, if you're fortunate enough to see a lot of companies, what you can say is, you know, I've seen this problem before. Let me tell you how company XYZ handles this problem. And that's really one of the values, I think, of having someone from the outside come into a shop is they can share with you best practices that they've seen in other companies, which if you only have people who have worked in your company all their lives, they might not have ever seen another way to do things. So that's one of the tools that you can use. You can also, and a lot of people talk about this, but not a lot of people do this, sort of look at your most profitable work and and make a separation between your most profitable work and or your most profitable clients and and try to separate them from your least profitable work and your least profitable clients. And and it's not quite as clear-cut as one might think because there are often mitigating circumstances where you want to keep your less profitable work. Oftentimes it's during a a lull. Maybe you get some of that less profitable work during the summertime, and if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have anything. And and to, to draw an analogy from sort of the balanced scorecard strategy, you really do need a mix of both profitable and unprofitable work. But a metric, and, and this is a metric that I'm trying to formally analyze, is what does that ratio need to be or what does that balance need to be between the less profitable work and the more profitable work? And the fact of the matter is nobody can survive on either one alone. There's a lot of people who will say, fire your customers, get rid of all your unprofitable work. But in all honesty, in my experience, that doesn't work. Companies cannot survive on just their most profitable work or their most profitable clients, and they can't survive just on their least profitable work or the least profitable clients. It needs to be a mix. You need to have a blend of high profit work as well as, as low profit work. And, and what that balance is is kind of unique to each, each company. 
but you really need to have a mix. But that doesn't mean that you can't try to take that less profitable work and make it more profitable. But you really do need a mix of both high-profit and low-profit work. I've never seen any company survive on just high-profit or low-profit work. Sometimes when you go visit a printer and analyze the workflow for bottlenecks, you find that the bottlenecks in the owner's mind are being caused by one issue, but the true cause is, is really something else. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, that's so true. That's so incredibly true. Most often when I walk into a company and they're aware of where their bottlenecks are, the first thing that they think about inevitably is always an equipment solution. I've got to buy a piece of equipment that does this faster. And oftentimes that's not really, ironically, going to help overcome the bottleneck. And and let me try to draw an analogy for you that will help make this more clear. There was a period of time when I lived in New Jersey, and uh, I had a, I would have to get to New York City to work, and I had a choice: I could drive my car, or I could take the train. Now my car can drive very fast; I could go 100 miles an hour in my car, but I've got to go through stop signs and I got to go through lights. The other alternative is to take the train. Now the train doesn't go very fast; the train might go 35, 45 miles an hour, but it doesn't make many stops. So what's the analogy here? Well, what we tend to do in the printing industry is we try to want to get fast cars. When we see a bottleneck, we say, I've got to get a faster piece of equipment to handle that. But really, oftentimes what our bottlenecks are really from is from work sitting in piles. And what we really need to do is not get fast cars, but build trains. What we need to do is we need to reduce the time that work sits in piles. And that may be an equipment solution, but it may also be a training solution. Maybe the people who are doing that task have not really been trained fully, and they're not as productive. And one of the things that I do often is to benchmark performance and compare how fast those people are doing a certain task to what I see in other companies and what national averages are and say, look, these people are not doing this particular task fast enough. And if we can increase the productivity of the staff doing this task, then we're going to streamline this bottleneck. So oftentimes what I find is the first thing that comes to mind is I've got to buy a faster press. I've got to buy a faster pre-press piece of equipment. I've got to buy a faster proofer, or computer plate device, or I've got to get a faster estimating system. When we shouldn't really think first about building fast cars, but building trains. We need to create workflow strategies that have fewer bottlenecks. You spend a lot of time with a lot of different printers, and you've seen the ones who misunderstand where the bottlenecks are, as you just spoke about. What are some of the characteristics that make you feel this is someone who gets it? What are, what are the, the leaders the people who are ahead of the game exhibiting in terms of their thinking and their process of analyzing their bottlenecks? I think the major difference between the leaders and the laggards in the industry, in my mind, is that the leaders are constantly trying to reevaluate how they do things. They're not willing to say, this is the level of productivity, or this is the level of speed, or this is the level of throughput that we can achieve. They're constantly 
looking at initiatives to try to do things better, do things faster. And, it, and, and that's where the culture of the company really becomes very important. Earlier, we talked about what a workflow really is, and a workflow really is the equipment and the staff and the procedures, and it's also the culture of the company. And what I see in the companies that are most successful in terms of workflows is that some companies have sort of a culture of continuous process improvement. Now, that's a term that's used very often, but what it really means is it's a, it's a culture of trying to find a way to do things better. And it's not just in necessarily the press room, and it's not necessarily in the pre-press area or in the estimating area or in the sales area. It's really a culture of trying to do things better throughout the entire company. And, and, and we as human beings are often not that way naturally. Oftentimes we as human beings is we want to get to a place where we're very comfortable in doing the same thing over and over again. Oftentimes a culture in a company is a culture in which let's see where we can get where we're comfortable in what we're doing. And the companies that I see as the real leaders are constantly trying to do things better. Howie, some of the things that you've suggested as areas for people to improve are areas that require investments in technology, investments in training, investments in uh, other things. Are there some areas where people can make improvements even if they don't have significant capital to invest in the, the other elements? There absolutely is. And one of the things that we've talked about during this podcast is the importance of sort of continuously reevaluating and continuously trying to improve your productivity, your operations, streamline your procedures. And it's important to recognize the fact that in a printing company, the amount of, of investment that you can make in any one department occurs every couple of years. So maybe one year you can make an investment in the press room, and another year you can make an investment in the estimating software, and another year you can make an investment in the pre-press area. What do you do on those other years, those three or four other years, when you can't make a significant investment? How can you continuously, or how do leaders continuously increase their productivity when they don't necessarily have the money that they would like to have to make an equipment solution, a buying decision? Well, you can look at training. And training is often overlooked as, as a very successful way of increasing productivity. If you, if you sort of benchmark your staff's performance against industry leaders, it'll become very clear where they stand in terms of, of the metrics that you measure, whether it's some sort of output per hour, you know, how many pages are coming off of a press or how many plates are coming off a pre-press device, a, a, a plate setter or an image setter, or whether it's a, it's a ratio, and, and ratios are really better metrics to look at, and I, I, I try to focus on, on ratios um, because ratios not, don't just take into account product per hour theories, but also take into account mistakes and rework, and most modern management philosophies say that you have to take into account rework because it's not just how many you make but how many you make right. So if you look at these metrics to evaluate staff performance, you can often say, okay, maybe there's a training solution that we can use here, or maybe we need to change the procedures. The procedures that we're using are not effective for this particular product. So in the step philosophy, the staff 
training equipment and procedures philosophy that I work with in trying to increase productivity and overcome bottlenecks, equipment is only one of those four steps and you have three other options that you can look at to try to increase productivity on those years when you can't afford to make a capital investment. How do you integrate the customer into this expanded and streamlined workflow? One of the misconceptions about workflow I think is that printing companies think that their workflow starts when it comes when the work actually arrives on the customer service person's desk and that's not true anymore it used to be it was at one point but it's not true anymore really your customer now has a lot more control over the final appearance or the quality or issues associated with production than they've ever had before because they create the files and one of the things that i see some of the more progressive companies do is they work on trying to help their customers prepare their files correctly. And you might say, and oftentimes I hear this in presentations, why? Why should I help my, my customers prepare their files correctly? One thing that we mentioned earlier is that bottlenecks decrease profitability, decrease productivity. And oftentimes people don't understand what the root cause is of that bottleneck. For example, it's not at all uncommon for me to walk into a company and see a bottleneck in front of the pre-press department. And everybody thinks that the pre-press department, the staff there don't know what they're doing or they don't have the right equipment or the procedures that they're using are all wrong. When oftentimes the reason there's a bottleneck in front of the pre-press department is because the customers have not been properly trained in how to prepare files. So it looks like the pre-press department is all messed up when what they're really doing is fixing customers' files. One of the strategies that I recommend often to companies is to create what I call a fast response pre-flight strategy in which files are looked at quickly and problems are identified quickly and files are given back to customers quickly and given the option we've got a problem with your file. We can fix it or you can fix it. If we fix it, we're going to charge you more money. Now, that may seem harsh, and there'll be a lot of people, I'm sure, in the audience listening to that say, yeah, we tried that, but it never really worked. But that strategy goes beyond trying to be a profit-making strategy. And what it really is, more than anything else, is a strategy in which you're encouraging customers to better prepare files. Whether you make money or not, just that conversation alone of this file has been prepared incorrectly and let me tell you how to better prepare it, the change in workflow, the streamlining of production is levels of magnitude faster every time you get a client to better prepare a file. So even though it sounds like you're trying to get more money for it, and it's nice if you can get more money for it, and often you can get more money for repairing a file. The overall strategy really is, if you can get clients to better prepare files, you streamline your workflow because your clients are part of your workflow. If you had one piece of advice that you would want to give to a company that's contemplating taking a hard look at their workflows and trying to find ways to improve, what would you advise them to do? I think the issue that you want to look at is, 
are you competitive? That's the complaint that I hear most from printers is that we have to be more competitive. Being more competitive can mean a lot of different things. Uh, you have to make sure that if you use a budget hourly rate analysis that your budget hourly rate analysis is up to date, that your standards and your figures that you use to calculate your budget hourly rates are, are up to date. The bottom line here is that if you're not competitive then you have to change something to become competitive. That'll really come down to analyzing your workflow. If you're not competitive it's usually something in your workflow that is causing you not to be competitive. Which may mean that you have a bottleneck, which may mean that you have quality issues. It, it could mean a lot of things. But the most common complaint that I hear from companies is that they're not competitive. And that should really be a sign. That should really be a motivating factor to look more closely at your workflow. And if you find that you're not competitive, then you've got to find a way to become competitive because those companies that are not competitive are not going to survive. What do you see in terms of looking out in the future for workflow improvements for the industry? What's your expectation, your view of the future? I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that as we move further and further into the future, we're going to see greater automation, more streamlining, what some people refer to as super efficient workflows. And there's technologies out there today that are, are promising us the ability to achieve that, the whole JDF initiative, job definition format, uh, which allows us to embed codes into our files that can help drive our, our presses and our post-press equipment, even uh, generate final bills and tie into online web services. That JDF initiative is going to become much more important. Now today, at this point in time, there's not a tremendous amount of equipment that you can buy that supports JDF, but I think that if you buy new equipment today, one of the critical factors that you have to make sure of is that it's JDF compliant. Because JDF is not going to be the only technology that drives automation, but it's going to be a very important technology that drives automation. So whether you're looking at a new piece of finishing equipment or a new press or a new pre-pressed piece of equipment, you've got to make sure that it's JDF compliant because that's going to be sort of the, the glue that ties together the super efficient workflows. And I think that super efficient workflows are inevitable. We're going to see workflows, and there are some already, that uh, allow us to have web-based input, uh, web-based interactions with customers, tying in directly to the creation of job jackets internally and tracking uh, using barcodes where the job is in the shop. Some have the ability to send emails back to customers. That eliminates a lot of time spent by CSRs and tracking down jobs and telling customers where jobs are. Streamline our pre-press process, our post-press process, and even our invoicing and billing process. So I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind that super efficient workflows are going to become the de facto standard in the next 10 years. And some of it, and most of it, is going to be driven by technology innovation just like JDF. Howie, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. You're very welcome.
hope you enjoyed this NAPL podcast program on workflows. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please drop us an email at NAPL at professionalpodcasts.com. Again, if you'd like more information on the value of NAPL membership, visit our website at napl.org or call 1-800-642-NAPL. That's 1-800-642-6275. And be sure to choose option four. This is Steve Lubetkin for NAPL. Thanks for listening. We'll see you out there on the net. Take good care.